You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Patrick, Towner. It's another edition of everyone's favorite podcast, The Beltway Briefing. And I have to start out this week by saying that Mark and I were standing at our party at the Pennsylvania Society last week. And somebody walks by and sees my name tag and they said, Howard Schweitzer, I know you. I listened to the Beltway Briefing. So I won't name the listener, but thank you. I have a fan. Um, yeah, did they take a selfie with you? Uh, <laughs> I That would have taken it to a whole nother level, but Felicia. You just offered it. <laughs> yeah. Felicia. Happens, Howard, I, I was at a gala for a client uh, two nights ago and had the same experience. A guy comes up to me, sees my name tag and says, I know you. I know Howard Schweitzer. Right. Connor, would you agree? Like the best thing about Mark and Howard, even though they leave the firm, they always make time for their fans. And I just think that's so cool about both of them. I was signing, well, I was going to say I was signing autographs, but plural would be an exaggeration. Only one. All next week, the two of them are going on a nationwide tour uh, together, just uh, meeting the fans, you know, taking selfies. Doing the whole thing. Three nights yeah. only. Yep. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're in Branson on Tuesday night next week, <laughs> Wayne Newton or Mark and Howard, enjoy. Believe That's me, Felicia and Sue Ellen. Yeah, go with Wayne Newton. We're eye rolling uh, to high heaven. So, guys, an interesting week in, in Washington. We have Jobs numbers out and a lot of discussion about the economy. We have end of the year wrap up and lots of hand wringing over where all that lands. But let's start here. We had college presidents from Penn, Harvard, and MIT testify before Congress this week. And they got taken to the proverbial woodshed especially by Representative Elise Stefanik from New York, who really put them on the spot, including her alma mater, Harvard University, in in terms of whether their codes of conduct prohibit calling for the genocide of Jews. And I'm going to say at the outset, I have a personal interest in, in the topic. So if you hear a little emotion in my voice, uh, that's why. But look, I mean, it, the the performance was Mark pathetic, absolutely pathetic. A charitable adjective to choose. It was disgraceful, and I share your bias and and, and your emotion. It was an extremely, for me, upsetting and and a, a moment of betrayal candidly by Liz McGill, the president of Penn, an institution that I had been very proud to be associated with my uh, whole adult life. 
but it was so clear. It was a moment of moral clarity, but in an extremely disgraceful and and upsetting way, they failed a simple test of leadership. There are, in fact, in the world, yes or no questions. There are questions that have only a yes or no answer, and they couldn't get there. Not one of them could get to yes on a yes or no question. And I think it was a colossal failure of leadership that that I know you, you agree, um, Howard, that is actually part of a a bigger failure on college campuses. It is not about anti-Semitism alone. It is about a mode of thought that creates a false equivalence between both sides of every story. And sometimes stories just have one right and one wrong side. Yeah. So that's that's my abbreviated <laughs> In my abbreviated speech on what was just a, a, a shocking moment. Shocking. And they and couldn't even do Elise it with Stefanik. Good. The Republicans, I'm not a big fan of her politics, uh, Towner knows, but good for her, even good for the speaker and representative banks. The Republicans distinguished themselves on, on this issue in that hearing. They they couldn't even answer the question with a straight face. They were literally smiling as she pressed them, and I, I would say laughing. I mean, the the smiles were smirking. They 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 conveyed a disgusting superiority. They thought they were just so much smarter than their questioner, and all they proved was that brilliant people can be really stupid sometimes. When we talk about the ivory tower, I mean, this is what my, my wife and I were talking about this after watching, you know, some of the hearing and the clips. I mean, these these are people who just don't, they're, the only people they're accountable to are tenured professors and maybe the board. Like, they live in this just bizarro world of what college campuses have become. And they, so for the first time, they're pressed on what all of us know is a simple yes or no question. And they just couldn't, first of all, they couldn't do it. And they thought it was beneath them to even have to answer the question in the first place. Right. And to me, it's it's not just about them. It's about, and I said this, Mark, to you yeah. and our wives on, on a text, yeah. it's yeah. about the professors. And because if, if these... If the faculty of these institutions wanted these people gone, they'd be gone in a hot minute. I mean, they would have been gone weeks ago. And the fact of the matter is, it's the professors and it's faculty governance. The professors believe this crap. And well, I, that's the problem. Yeah, that That is a serious dimension of the problem. But the ultimate moral and legal responsibility for stewardship of the institution as the board of trustees, which has defaulted to the professors in large part and has simply lost its bearings. I know these people. I served on that pen board for a number of years. That is not a body of anti-Semites. It is simply a body that has lost control of the institution. It is the inmates running the asylum uh, there and apparently at Harvard and 
and MIT also. But but what is disconcerting to me, we were texting about this last night, Howard. Uh, your your point, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, bringing it back to the Beltway and the Beltway briefing, it, yep. th- this will have political consequences. This is a validation, I fear, for a lot of people of the culture war and the indictment by many on the Republican side of where the culture of the country is heading. And this, the the tragic irony here is that these fools in some delusional defense of free speech are going to bring in a new era of censorship and and there will be less exchange of ideas because this plays it plays directly into the campaign theme of the leading contender for your party's nomination towner Trump and and others will have a field day with all of this. Yeah, and I, I, I have not weighed in yet on this, and and I don't know that I want to weigh in on this because I feel like to a certain extent, you know, it's it's uh, I don't it's to a certain extent it's a little bit of comeuppance. I feel like for Democrats that have fostered a uh, liberal college system that uh, that feels free to coddle and to uh, respect every single viewpoint. Well, there's viewpoints that shouldn't be respected, probably, and I think we can agree on that as a society. We finally found one here, certainly, uh, that we all agree is not a viewpoint that should be fostered or shared or encouraged in any way because it's hateful. And there's certainly things on the Republican side that are very hateful. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but at the same point in time, universities, especially you know the top hundred or so, and most of them in the Northeast and California, have had free reign for a long time. And they've had a lot of groupthink for a long time. And I think on some of these things, Republicans are right to question whether or not uh, the universities are, are they're, they're taking kids for four years. And we, every single parent desperately tries to get their children into these, into these top universities. It's a, it's a life goal. You know, you're, you've done well as a parent, if you can get your child to one of these universities and they're on their way to a, uh, to a successful life. And so then we turn our backs and we don't look at what happens when they're there for four years. And, and I think for a number of years, for a couple of decades now, Republicans have been saying, look, we need to pay attention to what's happening while they're there. There needs to be some some further oversight. And I think now at least maybe a silver lining to to some of this where there isn't any good at all is that, you know, folks are going to start paying attention to what's happening in universities. Does it go the other way? Does it does it, you know, crack down on things that should be talked about probably and that's unfortunate um that's the point because that's what we were saying because guess who wants to crack down on this stuff it's the nominee it's the most likely nominee for the republican nomination it plays right into his hands he's more likely to get elected and he's more and he's an he's going to be an autocrat he's autocratic yeah so it's it's bad. And one thing I was thinking about, I mean, I think Ron DeSantis, I'm no fan of Ron DeSantis. I've been a skeptic since day one, but when Ben Sass left the Senate to go be the president of the university of Florida and DeSantis put him in that job, I mean, 
and and wanted a voice of reason, uh, this this would not be happening at the University of Florida. Yeah, well, it is not, and the the proof's on the ground. It is not. It it's happening where it's happening for a reason. Yeah, and it's. I'm glad it was exposed. I mean, yeah, I fear. But just anti- may I just say yeah. though, I, I don't mean you know how seriously I I take this, but just on. A lighter note for a moment, bringing it back to the Beltway and to what we do for a living. Who on earth prepared those people? Oh my God! Testimony. No. Do we have any idea what fools sent them out there to say that? We've all prepared people for all sorts of testimony, congressional included. It it is malpractice per se. To have sent them out there to say that. I'll tell you so bad. Liz McGill recorded a video yesterday after the fact, disclaiming everything she said in front of the United States Congress. It's the easiest thing in the world to get up there and take every question serious. It's not easy, but you take every question seriously. Um, you take every question, you respect every question. It's not, it's just, it's well, not that it, hard. It's, it's axiomatic. It's, it's prep 101. You say to the witness, just answer the question you're asked. Just right. focus on what you are being asked and give the simplest possible answer to that question alone. And these women were, were, playing at being constitutional because solid. they think they're smarter than the yeah, people asking right. them the questions right which right. by the way on paper they are yeah, right right <laughs> i'll tell you what i am going to do mark every trump question for the next 11 months i'm going to respond with harvard university president claudine gay's response that she repeated over and over and right. over again that type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me and I'm going to respond to every Trump question you ask for the next 11 months with that. It's, uh, Fair enough. And, and, and Towner, I will have the same respect for your answer that I have for hers. There you go. <laughs> I don't know if you guys feel so. I feel like because the, because the testimony was so bad, the focus has been entirely around how are these people, A, in charge, and B, to your point, Howard and Mark, not better prepared. Had the answers to the questions been a little more thoughtful, I felt like there maybe would be more attention on to the just blatant hypocrisy that everyone sees here too, which is these presidents have no trouble like revoking invites from conservative speakers on campus and falling prey to, I mean, it's right. The idea that they are beacons of free speech is total crap and everyone knows it. And that, that to me didn't get enough attention because it didn't need to, because they, they just, I mean, they failed from, the first moment they started answering questions. Here's the thing. They make, they made me less safe. They made me less safe yeah. because guess what? I fear the right, the anti-Semitism from white nationalists, neo-Nazis far more than I fear the anti-Semitism on the left as disgusting and abhorrent as it is far more. It's far more dangerous Coming from the what comes from the right, what comes from these white nationalist nut jobs that support Donald Trump, and they gave them cover. Done. Yeah, it's yeah. 
it's totally hypocritical. It's totally disgusting. It's totally stupid. And it's not, but it's not just about them. It's about the professors. It's about these people that teach our kids and that teach our kids from the perspective of, from a one-sided perspective that leads to more polarization and a less well-developed young mind. It's it's upsetting. So there's you know, my Democratic opinion. members were just they must have been just like ready to oh. bash their heads into the wall listening oh. to this too. I mean the White House. Yeah, I mean, the I'm, White House. Anyone uh, with a brain. Well, I mean, to your to your point, like if you, I mean, House, if you're, yeah. Go ahead, Patrick. No, I was just gonna say, I mean, <laughs> you're giving in addition to giving cover to the most abhorrent people in our society, Howard is it's you just alluded to, you're also giving, to your point about Ben Sass and the University of Florida, you're giving DeSantis, the, the people want to ban books and treat gay right. people like crap in Florida. You're giving them the moral high ground. I, it, it, that's it, my it point. It just makes no sense right. to me. I do think, in, in you mentioned the White House, the, the president, uh, this is, what's our formulation, Towner, about personally? Personally, I believe that the president has been very strong since October 7th on this, including yesterday where his press secretary came out and in no uncertain uh, or conditional terms condemned them and, and their testimony. I, I applaud the president for being strong. Absolutely. Yeah, he's not an Ivy Leaguer. In fact, he feels insecure by all the Obama Ivy League crap that surrounds him all the time. He should come out as University of Delaware Joe and say, this yeah. is a bunch of crap. These people don't speak for the country. They don't speak for me. I mean, that's what, I, I, frankly, yeah. I think it's a great differentiator opportunity for him. You know, I know they're trying to figure out just how to get out of the political hole a little bit, how to formulate a message. This, to me, is like a no-brainer issue for him, and it's not going to come off. Uh, it'd be a way harder issue for Obama. I mean, these are his yeah. people. Oh, like, no, this, question. This, yeah, no question. Biden, Biden could do it, and I Biden think it would immediately fire all Ivy League graduates in the administration. I think that's an important thing to set <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, that's <laughs> So I'm, our our listeners can't see, but I'm I'm dressed up here. I am on my way as an as a full Ivy League graduate. Yeah. Mark, you went to Brown. That he wasn't talking about people went to the Brown. Yeah, no, that's that that doesn't count. I mean, as so, a Duke grad, we are proud to not be in the Ivy League. So. When I get part to the, the visitors' gate, so they're not when there. I get to the visitors' gate at the executive office building this afternoon to be admitted to this briefing I'm attended. If they turn me away, I'm holding you personally accountable. Given the political climate, they may ask for your diploma and your driver's <laughs> license when you go through they, security. Yeah. Mark, well, I is that, friend. I didn't realize that's in person. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, ah. I'm getting on, getting on a train as soon as we're done here. This is how desperate they are. It's it's they're bringing did Mark they're, in. They invited me. <laughs> Mark's running the reelect. <laughs> Mark, what do we do? We can't get out of this political hole. Yeah. Give us Mark, some advice. Get an alderman on the yeah. train. Right. Who, some who, who better to bring in than a guy that runs a lobbying firm with two Ivy League degrees? Totally. Yeah. This out of this hole, Mark. Biden sending his right. personal Amtrak car. Yeah. For, you watch, for you watch the poll numbers next week. Uh, oh. I, got, I got, as Michael Heller would say if he's listening, I got this. 
Again, the yes. alderman bump is coming. I want to know <laughs> if you get a piece out of the meeting like 15, 20 minutes early if you start yeah. getting bored. Oh, yeah. There's no chance I'm there at the end. No chance. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. It's hard to leave this topic. It is. We've only just begun on the counter. We could do Duke, Illinois, <laughs> Michigan v the ivy league you know i'll be i'll be yeah i mean i'm not trying to defend duke by any stretch of the imagination uh you know they asked me for money uh about a year after i graduated and uh an article had just come out saying 96 percent of duke's professors identified as liberal democrats and i was i wrote them uh, i did my protest by putting a zero in the uh fundraising form and sending it back on in and set with a copy of the article and I actually did that because I'm I'm a punk like that for about five years. And some poor kid had to open that and throw it in the trash can every time. But uh, yeah, no, nah, it's I support the team. I support the uh, I, I support the students. I, I don't support the faculty. Academia needs some needs some reform. Well, Trump 2.0 will take care of that. Howard. I mean, he's going to just <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> it's. What, what's my uh, what's my response? Hang yeah, on let's see. Right, I, I got it right. There. I, I have it here. Uh, this type of hateful speech is personally <laughs> abhorrent to me. There you go. So, end of the year, guys. Uh, yeah, a lot hanging in the balance and in the new year. Towner, give us a short version of where we are with end of the year activity. Yeah, it's fourth and 25 uh, from our own five yard line. And uh, we're going to punt on just about everything. So no, we uh, Congress as a whole, it was funny because Punchbowl, which is a sort of inside the Beltway press uh, organization that's that's popped up, you know, they have uh, they had a, a great debate in one of their columns talking about there's the do nothing Congress from the 1940s. So what is this? Uh, it's worse than the do nothing Congress is the, the do nothing ist Congress, you know, right now, uh, there are, uh, well, obviously we have the latter CR approach. So government fundings pushed off to January 19th and February 2nd, uh, respectively, as, as far as the bills are concerned for government funding, they are putting forward another short-term extension of the FAA bill until March 8th. The farm bill has been extended by a year to the end of September of 24. They're going to extend uh, the Patriot Act FISA provisions that were going to uh, lapse uh, for, for a number of months as well. The only thing they actually might get to is the defense authorization bill. Uh, they finished up the conference committee on that. The Senate's going to vote on it probably Tuesday, maybe Wednesday of next week. And then it'll go over to the House, but the House has put it on the suspension calendar, which means they need a two-thirds vote to be able to pass it. And Freedom Caucus is going ballistic because, shockingly, all of their amendments in the House that would eliminate the diversity, equity, and inclusion office at the Pentagon and put abortion restrictions in uh, for soldiers and and things like that, and our service members uh, were stricken in the negotiation. And so they're losing their mind saying, we can't vote for this. This is not reflective of the bill that we passed. 
thankfully, it's reflective of the bill that the country needs. Uh, and hopefully, they'll be able to figure out a way to get across the finish line before the end of the year. Rough math on that, Donner, with just yeah. the size of the Freedom Caucus. And if Democrats mostly vote for NDAA and enough yeah. Republicans, is that is two thirds still feasible or is it just really tight? Two thirds is feasible, but it's tight. So if you think about it in terms of NDAA, I mean, I'm, this is not a political point in any way, shape or form, just a math point. NDAA tends to lose 40 to 60 Democrats just because the squad will vote against it. The, the liberal arm and squads derogatory. The liberal arm will vote against it uh, because they can't support an NDAA because they don't support military apparatus for the most part. And and they'll drag another 20 or so Democrats with them. Then on the Republican side, if you have 40 Freedom Caucus members link arms and vote against it, they tend to drag 50 or 60 members with them to equal about 100. So you need 282. There's there's a couple folks. Gone. By the way, I don't think the squad's derogatory. Don't they call themselves a squad? I don't I, think you need to worry about they did. that. It's like yeah. I can't ever figure out if like you know Obamacare was adopted by the president, and then I'm yeah. like, is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? Now I'm not sure. Right. So like I'm I'm not sure. Bidenomics, I consider that negative, but they created. It, you know, <laughs> you should consider it negative because it sounds so stupid. But yeah, exactly. yeah. It's We've abandoned that counter. <laughs> But anyway, so you need about 282, I think it is, to to reach two thirds in the House. And you know, if you have 160 defections, you're not you're not there. So uh, so there's some some arm twisting that needs to happen, and we're right on the number, to be quite frank. If you roll back the tape on like five or six Beltway briefings ago, maybe a few more of that, we talked about immigration and Towner had a segment where he talked about why we can never get agreement on immigration. And you're, you're totally seeing like exactly what he said, play out that there's just these lines in the sand that each party has that, and and you, you said it really well, the part. So that is all true. The part I find amazing, first of all, it's complicated, obviously, because it's attached to foreign aid, which I think, you know, the people who made that decision felt like that was in the best interest of getting something done on the border. And I kind of can't believe that the Republicans wouldn't rather extract so much of what I think they would be able to extract here because like they they have the advantage on the issue. The Biden administration recognizes that the status quo isn't working. I think congressional Democrats are willing to cut a deal. I think Langford's really trying. And then you have the House Republicans saying anything short of what we want is unacceptable. To me, it's like kind of mind blowing because I think they would be able to get, you know, just I think they'd be able to get a lot of what they want in immigration. They're not going to get like conservative HR2 immigration reform, but I think they'd get a ton of stuff that Democrats wouldn't ordinarily agree to. And I'm kind of amazed that they yeah. can, they just can't get it. Well, I'll say two things on it. First of all, Lankford's still at the table. The negotiations have restarted after really not happening over the weekend and into Monday. Um, so at least that's positive uh, from that standpoint. I will say when it comes to border security, Republicans have generally agreed to incremental increases in border security, um, but, you know, and and not tied to anything else. Uh, this was like a hallmark of early Obama term and and late George W. second term, George W. Bush second term. Um, but when it comes to getting more comprehensive, you know, we we find frequently a situation where 
both parties, I will say. I mean, I think the Dems really did it in George W. Bush's uh, era of trying to get uh, immigration reform done. Both parties, you know, view their side as a winning issue. And um, it's 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 so it's difficult to find that compromise on the grander package. You can find smaller pieces. So we'll trade border security for a little bit of asylum reform or something like that. But but usually you can't find much more grander than that before you run headlong into the into the no, we want our whole we want our whole policy on either side. It's a consequential gridlock on immigration, though, as Howard has often said. Immigration is a, an economic issue more than any other. And I, I'm thinking of it because we had a health law seminar with um, a large number of our clients this week. The, the major complaint from all was workforce, cannot find enough people to take care of all of us. And the answer is immigration, but the gridlock is is not going to allow that anytime soon. So it, it it's not just uh, an interesting political science point. It's having real economic consequences. Well, and on the other side, you got like Chris Murphy negotiating, you got Durbin out there. I mean, with everything going on in the big cities, it's like if you let the mayors of New York and Chicago put this deal, they would be like, okay, let's get a deal. I can't live in this every day, but it can't continue. Like the fascinating aspect to your point, Mark, about the employment and the the jobs need is, you know, Langford quoted a statistic earlier this week: forty five thousand citizens of the country of India have gone across the southern border and they fly to countries in Central America and they walk across the southern border because our immigration system is just broken. The lotteries are broken. The country allocations are broken. All of it's broken. And, you know, we would probably sit here and say, sure, you know, 45,000 people from India, like they want to come in and come on in, come on in, you know, come on in and take care of us. Yeah. But the quota is filled from India. So what is your option? You sit there year after year after year and you wait for literally a lottery. You put your name in a lottery. Like I put my name in a lottery for master's tickets every year and, you know, try to get them. And so you either do that or you hop on an airplane and you, you transit countries where you're not in you're not in any personal danger you're not you know and then you walk across the border and you request asylum and we say be on your way we'll see you in 4 or 5 years for your hearing if if we can find you at that point in time and then they work in the United States they work illegally but they work in the United States and they work whether or not there's a Democratic administration or a Republican administration. You know, it's just it's a broken system. Soup to nuts. It's not just the southern border. It's not just Central and South America. It's top to bottom. It's a broken, broken system. I do think that there are so many companies up on Capitol Hill pushing this issue, pushing the telling people, telling their representatives that we lack a workforce, that eventually something has to happen. But I mean, we'll see when, we'll see when that something. But the companies is. ask such incremental requests too. I mean, they may throw a few thousand bucks into a grander association on immigration reform. But what they say is, 
Uh, we need we need an increase in the allocation of H2B because we have high tech jobs in our particular field, you know, like that. Or we need McDonald's. They're, they're not banging a drum to fix the system. Right. They're, right. they're asking that tweak our particular quota. problem be tweaked and, and addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Fair and the Republicans aren't the party of business anymore. <laughs> so there's a limit to what their advocacy does, I think, with the current crop of folks up there. Yeah, it's that's not true. Yeah, it's just. Well, let's spend a couple of minutes on the economy as we wrap jobs numbers out today. Uh, reasonably strong. The economy, it continues to be confusing. And at the end of the day, notwithstanding everything else we're talking about, the economy is going to be the principal driver of the outcome next November. And you know, we talked about retiring the term Bidenomics that Biden that the administration tried to put out there. I mean, it's a it's a good economy that everybody feels like is a bad economy. But can I ask a question real quick? I I got a question on this. Shouldn't you shouldn't Democrats want bad jobs numbers this morning? Isn't that the goal? Like the worse the economy, like the Fed is honest to God trying to hurt the economy to slow down the cooling. But then Democrats go out there and say great jobs numbers this morning. But that's not a good thing. We actually want the economy to go down so that inflation goes down to two percent goal. But if you keep trumpeting positives on the economy in the short term, you're going to lose in the long term. I I just I can't figure it out. Soft landing is the answer. The, okay. The the democratic message, the democratic hope is soft landing because a crash landing is bad politics and no landing is is inflation and bad politics. So 199,000 jobs I think is actually a, a, an okay democratic number because it's a soft landing number. But but that is such a complicated message. And our guys are so bad at explaining even the easy stuff that it's exactly what Howard said. I think a tremendous frustration the president feels is that while he's been president, we all know that the economy is bigger than the White House and the president doesn't really make or break it. But while Joe Biden's been president, it's been a pretty good economy and everybody thinks it's awful. And and that is a that is a political problem and a frustration for the president. I suspect that is going to consume a lot of the oxygen in your in your briefing today, Mark. I think so. They're going to they're going to trot trot out some new messages and, and see how they how they are heard. It's a good question. I think it's a good question for Democrats and Mark, the people you're going to be in the room with to think about, because I think if a Republican president had this exact same environment, they would be saying the economy's good and people would believe them. I just yeah. I just think I don't I there is something about I don't know what it is, but I feel like the public believes part of it. I wonder is if they just always think that Democrats are simultaneously trying to change the economy at the like they they don't, you know, with all of the large bills that were passed and all of this new economy, a lot of our messaging is about we're transforming the auto industry and we're doing all that. I think people just get worn out with the perception of like Democratic top down. We're trying to mastermind how everything's going to look in 10 or 15 years. And Republicans, 
with this economy, I think would just be like riding the numbers. Everything's great. You know, more of the same, more of the same. Everything's good. Moving in. Every, everyone has jobs, but things cost a lot more. And inflation may be, may not be as high as it was 18 months ago, but things cost much more. It also feels fragile. I think I I think an element of this that we're just not going to get a grip on for years is is post COVID fallout. Everything's just different since well, that, COVID, and you you know you go yeah. to the local coffee shop and instead of two people there's one and the line's twice as long and it just doesn't feel. It doesn't feel as good as the numbers suggest. But, but it costs twice as and, much. And when you finally get to the counter, it costs twice as much. And because they have to pay the worker more, because they can't fill jobs, and because the cost of making the coffee is much higher, it's the shipping. I mean, everything is... Well, the shipping's down. The shipping is down <laughs> from where it was. The yeah. shipping is down. Um, but it, but it just but, hasn't sorted itself out yet post COVID. Too much, too much chaos from COVID. Agree with that. Groceries are bizarre, by the way. I don't know if you guys do the grocery shopping. I don't, but my wife tells me it is. I may have brought stuff on another podcast. It's cheaper to shop at Whole Foods for our groceries than at our retailer, like our you know, Kroger grocery store. And she showed me the price comparison. It's my, it's my, it's mind blowing. I'm not touching that one. That's going to be, you got to do a little of the grocery shopping, right? Yeah. Indoctrinating our housewives. Uh, It's like the universities of uh, the Northeast. I'm (laughs) going to excuse myself to get on a train to go save the president's uh, reelect. But I know you guys are going to sympathize with Howard wearing his Michigan sweatshirt. Well, that's where we're going to end. That's Perfect. where we're going to end, Mark. Howard, go, Mark, go fix it. Go fix yep. it. I'm gonna. I got to hang in for for the greatest injustice of the 21st century to date. Florida State left out of the college football playoffs. I demand an investigation. <laughs> I demand an investigation into the University of Michigan being forced, getting the number one seed and being forced to play Nick Saban and those guys from Tuscaloosa. So good. Uh, They leave out an undefeated team and they make you the number one seed and you got screwed. That's how it feels. It's uh, it's. (laughs) Yeah. So can I go blue? I'll start there. But you know what? I would. I wouldn't want to play Texas either. Texas oh, beat this Alabama team, and Texas did not have a did not need a miracle against a mediocre Auburn team. Alabama isn't the Alabama of of recent years, but it was a pretty pretty damn interesting twenty four hours as Florida State got screwed. We can need- beat them, but God. I need Stuart Shorenstein on for this, but uh, from the flip side, you can see what good it did the ACC to sell out basketball to try to try to be good at football. You know, right. you ruin the best basketball conference in the nation year after year since the since the mid 1950s in favor of football revenue. And you just got you just got your comeuppance. 
right? Yeah, also, well, with, ACC is toast. Next with year, pop. we have 12 teams in the playoffs, so y- you won't have this particular problem. But there also um, will not be a Pac-10 or 12 or 14 or wherever it ended. And you're going to have West Coast teams in the Big Ten, which 20. to me is the, in the Big 20, which Patrick – that is truly the crime of the 21st century. Yeah, what has I, happened? I agree. And the, the, it's not, you know, I'm sure you guys have, we, I don't know how many of our listeners have followed it, but the 12 teams too, there's a whole system with how they're going to, it's not just a ranking one to 12 based on if you win your conference championship, that factors into if you get a buy. And it's this whole kind of interesting system that I'm sure will create a lot of, uh, headaches for the committee. I do think to tie it back, Howard, to what we talk about every week. I mean, all the conversations we were having about the college football playoff politics was at the center of it, right? I mean, there you have a committee of people who are deciding, who are having to make an imperfect decision uh, based on the number of teams you can allow in. And to just believe that they pick the four teams that they think are the best and that's how they do it, which is their mandate. I think we all know that's just not ultimately what happens. They have to make political decisions. They have to decide, do we want the SEC screaming and yelling at us or do we want Florida State screaming and yelling at us? And it's it's just interesting, I think, trying to get in the head of those decision makers. Politics and money. Yeah. And People I don't think the big would rather see here. Alabama play. Yeah. Then Florida State, it's going to drive more eyeballs to TV screens than Florida State. And I mean, Alabama, Michigan, it's like an all time great game. Theoretically, I don't think the Big Ten's as weird as the Atlantic Coast Conference adding Cal and Stanford next year. That is going to be weird. That is going to be really weird. Yeah. And by the way, not. uh <laughs> It's not going to raise the level not of the top uh, tiers. competition yeah. in the conference. Yeah. Uh, well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, Stanford will be the nerdiest game of the year. That's for sure. That'll be a good <laughs> Stanford Duke. They just break Stanford out and do Duke. math problems at halftime. That'll become a rivalry just because, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we bookended our podcast with college. I'm not sure how to synthesize college presidents and college football, uh, but they're I all guess, screwing up. Well, no matter, how about this, Howard? No matter how bad politics inside the Beltway seem, at least we don't have those college presidents and the people who decide the college football playoff right, running the there country. You go. Yeah, the, uh, the I would say the common thread is money, because at the end of the day, these college presidents are goners. And they're goners because their donors are demanding their their dollars back. And that's ultimately going to drive the decision there. I don't care, you know, what these uh, professors say. And it's, I think, what drove the decision on, yeah. on college football. And if you want to answer, find the answer to any problem, follow the money. And that's that's it. The education boosters are angrier than the sports boosters right now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, spirited as always, next week is our annual Christmas Carol edition of the Beltway Briefing. So all of you listeners, get ready. I'll be singing again.
Yes. La, 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 la. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll have a full house next week. It'll be fun. And thanks everybody for listening. Mark, Patrick, Towner. We'll see everyone next week. Thanks everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.